My name is Mustafa Akwand, and in this episode, uh, I'm with my co-host, Senge Sering, who is a professional working on different subjects, helping the human being to be a better person and helping a lot of minorities and majorities in different countries. Uh, thank you very much, Senge, to be here. Uh, please introduce yourself. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Shingit Heading. I come from Gilgit, Baltistan. I live in Washington, D.C., and I run a nonprofit called Gilgit, Baltistan Institute. And I'm very happy to be here with Mustafa Akram to do this podcast. And I think the best way to start up the podcast is that the co-host introduces himself. So thank you for... Um, me as your first guest. Sure, thank you very much, uh, Senge. So, uh, you are focusing on Gilgit Baltistan. Uh, to begin with, let's just, uh, you know, for some people like me who don't know exactly where is Gilgit, can you explain where is Gilgit and what is the situation over there? Right, so uh, I think geography matters a lot, uh, and in this world, you know. Uh, certain parts of the world get media attention because of their geography. So, Gilgit Baltistan is extremely important for the international community because it uh, exists between three nuclear powers of the world. In the north of Gilgit is China, and the southwest is Pakistan, and southeast is India. And then in the west is Afghanistan, which is uh, uh, boiling pot of strategic maneuvering right now, as we know. So um, it is uh, a very uh, uh, an important part as far as these countries are concerned. And any other country in the world that is interested in affairs in Afghanistan and the issues between India and Pakistan or the um, situation that is uh, evolving in Xinjiang, for instance, or Tibet, for instance, these are all neighbors of Pakistan. Uh, we are immediate neighbor of the Chinese province of Xinjiang in the north, and to some extent, uh, Tibet in the east. And uh, we uh, are uh, abridging a land between different uh, important nations as well. So, for instance, without Gilgit Baltistan, Pakistan would not be able to connect itself physically with China. In the same way, without Gilgit Baltistan, India would not be able to connect itself with its ally Afghanistan. So um, the strategic placement of Gilgit Baltistan has made it an extremely important uh, territory. And a lot of books have been written about, written about it, about its politics, about its uh, trade. Um, and it's very close to the ancient Silk Route that we know connected China with uh, Central Asia, uh, Middle East, and all the way to the European uh, nations. So um, I come from that region, and because of uh, the importance of this region, I thought that I should establish a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. So whenever somebody needs my help to understand uh, the situation there, about its people, about its culture, identities, about its natural resources, and uh, 
politics, then I would be able to uh, be able to provide my services in that manner. So that's what I do. I, um, as Mustafa explained, I uh, try to uh, talk to different people with different interests in the region. I uh, try to host uh, different events, um, seminars. Um, I try to um, communicate with different institutions, both bilateral and multilateral nature uh, that are involved in that region, including the uh, different staffs of the United Nations, for instance, um, uh, people at the U.S. Congress and at different uh, institutions in the European Parliament, for instance, or the British Parliament. Um, so Gilgit is uh, becoming more important. Now we know that China is evolving and posing itself as the next superpower of the world. It is evolving as a strong economy and it has a strong military power. And Pakistan is China's ally, an extremely important uh, country for China. Uh, it's, uh, China sees Pakistan as its extended arm uh, as, uh, in uh, the Muslim countries, so through Pakistan, China has been able to make a lot of inroads into Middle East. Uh, so I think these uh, uh, times are very interesting. And what I do is also uh, the same nature. All right. Uh, so, uh, so basically, uh, you are uh, just... Uh, explain this to for me is that you are you citizen of Pakistan or you are a citizen of India so this is an extremely important question and I think you know it's very uh, funny in a way that you asked it with such a such an ease but I think it's a very complicated issue and it has a history of almost 75 <laughs> years <laughs> so in 1947 when um, the British were dividing all that's gone colonies all over the world in Africa and Asia, um, South America, North America, everywhere. What they were doing was they were, for India, they made a constitutional arrangement through its um, government in London and they divided India into two countries, India and Pakistan. There were parts of India at that time, lands that were governed from Delhi, for instance, which did not become part of India or Pakistan, like Myanmar became its own country. And we have the Gulf Republics like Oman and uh, Emirates and you know, Qatar and other places that end, which were ruled from Delhi from the same uh, place, but they became independent countries. Um, but yeah, when, when they distributed lands between India and Pakistan, my land uh, constitutionally became part of India. But then a war happened between India and Pakistan, and after the end of the war, there was a ceasefire. Uh, and then the matter went to the United Nations Security Council. And at that time, Pakistan had already occupied my land, uh, the district that I come from. So constitutionally, I had uh, my ancestors had become part of India at that time. But um, but then physically we came, we became part of Pakistan, and then uh, for about ten more years up until 1957, after the birth of Pakistan, I think they had tried to resolve this matter through the Security Council. Nothing happened. 
Uh, one of the conditions that the Security Council put on Pakistan was that it had to withdraw all its soldiers, all its forces, all its citizens from building Pakistan. And Pakistan was not going to do that. So that's why we got stuck with the situation that we are in today, which is I kind of um, uh, had you know dual citizenship of India, Pakistan, and at the same time did not have a citizenship of any country at all. Because mm. constitutionally, even though uh, my people live in Guilty Pakistan, within Pakistan right now, up until now, constitutionally, we're not Pakistani citizens. But we have access to Pakistani lands and jobs and other services, you know, medical institutions, colleges, universities. Um, and we also use Pakistani passport to travel to other countries. But when it comes to the Pakistani constitution, it clearly states that we are not Pakistani citizens. Um, so that is, you know, one uh, big uh, confusion that is there. Now, on the other hand, in 1949, when India formed its constitution, it clearly put us as its citizen uh, in, in the constitution. And when it became a sovereign country, it claimed Gilgit Baltistan as its integral part. But then it didn't have any physical control over it. Um, so, um, and then in 1970s, there was another war in Pakistan that also created Bangladesh as an independent country. So, at that time, India was able to gain control of some of the villages of Gilgit Baltistan, and they became, uh, you know, Indian citizens and been able to enjoy constitutional rights there. So, there is this confusion between uh, India and Pakistan right now, which is, they are not able to resolve this matter, um, and that is affecting the local people uh, with their uh, basic uh, political, economic needs. Is that whenever, you know, for instance, we want to seek justice through Pakistani judicial system, for instance, we are told that we cannot take our case to the Pakistani Supreme Court because the people are not Pakistani citizens. Um, for instance, whenever we have royalty issue, like, you know, Pakistan using our minerals or water, um, we do not get anything back uh, in revenue because we are told that we are not Pakistani citizens. Um, in the same way, you know, there are a lot of other things that the local people should get as basic rights, but they are not uh, able to because the law does not really protect them. So, I mean, it's very hard to blame, you know, what's going on with the local people right now. But it's a huge uh, impasse. Uh, and impasse is there because of the strategic location of Gilgit Pakistan. And the fact that, you know, India Pakistan both are nuclear powers and they are always fighting over, you know, territorial disputes. And no, you know, big success uh, has been able to, um, you know, be made on either side. Mm -hmm. So basically, whoever, who, where country that they want to, they can't blame you for something, or they can't blame the other country for that. But when it comes to your rights and your issues, uh, you guys have a hard time to uh, raise. Exactly, it. like yeah. you know, our families are divided. You know, there are people who have their children living on the other side. The people who are living, their brothers and siblings, you know, they are living in India and Pakistan. And because of the tension between India and Pakistan, we can't really have a cross-border movement right now. 
Mm-hmm. So that is the biggest problem as well. You know, that people who uh, have died basically waiting to be able to reunite it with their family members just because there's a huge wall between India and Pakistan through Pakistan. They're not willing to even open it, you know, just for a temporary reunion of the, the divided, you know, separated family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people who uh, are divided, what they do is they go to, for instance, Iraq. They go to Iran, they go to Syria. These are the places where the Shias have their, um, you know, pilgrim sites. And so the majority of the people in the Gilgit Pakistan and on the other side, on the Indian side, uh, uh, along the line of control of the ceasefire line are Shia. So they go to these Shia sites and there they meet each other. And, you know, it's such a huge uh, human catastrophe because at least, you know, people should be allowed to see each other and they did not have to, like, travel all the way to, like, you know, thousand miles away. Like, they have to go to Nepalese, to Dubai, or to other places, Kuwait, for instance, to meet each other. And this is something that is happening. So the war has brought a lot of, you know, misery to the local people and a lot of waste of money and, you know, nothing is being put towards the development of the local people. So these are the things that, you know, really concern uh, everyone. Mm -hmm. So uh, regarding the educational system, uh, do you guys follow the educational system of Pakistan or or India? So the physical control is in Pakistan. So that means that we get our uh, uh, education, all the services, whether it's education, health, water, sewage, they're done through Pakistan. As I mentioned that, you know, towards India, there's this huge wall. We cannot have cross-border movement like that for the last 75 years. Mm-hmm. So we have a road that connects Pakistan with China. So that is the main road that, you know, Pakistan uses to uh, trade with China. Um, and we also have border with Afghanistan. But again, because of the political problems with Afghanistan, it is kind of like close. You know, we never have any trade through that. Uh, corridor. Uh, so it's only China-Pakistan corridor through Gilgit-Baltistan. And all education that we get, we get uh, based. I mean, we don't have, um, interesting thing is that, you know, we do not have our own uh, school or college board. So uh, Pakistani school and college education system is kind of replicated in Gilgit-Baltistan. And the funding that comes from Islamabad uh, for local education, and uh, uh, it's the same way with, with the medical services. Is that uh, a lot of supplies uh, and jobs that come from from Pakistan? Uh, bureaucracy uh, in civil services, for instance, uh, and judiciary—they all come from Pakistan. So Pakistan has control over the region, uh, not only through you know, military force, but also through its administration. This bureaucracy, they all come from Pakistan mm-hmm. and control the region mm-hmm. and benefit from it. This is, this is very important uh, for the, uh, our listener to understand that this the conflict of identity that is happening among the people and uh, they are they know that they are Pakistani, they know they are, they are Indian, they, they have that issues uh, that they have to explain not only for themselves, they have to explain it for, for their future generation. 
of what what are the things that is happening and what are the ways because the future generation is always looking to see what the past generation did and what was their mistake or what was their success right now with this conflict of identity is something that the future generation will struggle a lot and uh, toward the education that you are saying uh, is that all the fundings that everything that is coming from there and you were mentioning uh, uh, that there is a yeah, lot of you, know, you know what happened Mustafa in the war zones is that the biggest issue is trust right um, yes the governments really don't know how to trust the local people how to like you know uh, engage their loyalties how to measure their loyalties because mm-hmm. they're not really citizens of the country so that that is reflected the way you know the governments build their policies towards such regions. For instance, in Pakistan, when, when we say education, it's not really education, it's all indoctrination. You know, you're not learning to be a useful, successful person out there in the world. It's all about, like, you know, stuffing information in your brain about how great Pakistan is, mm-hmm. how amazing the country and its military is, how important it is to be loyal to the country, and how important it is to, you know, to hate India and hate Hindus. How important it is to uh, look at everything from the prism of the Muslim versus non-Muslim. So basically, your children are growing uh, up as confused people with no major skills to help themselves stand up on their feet as important you know, citizen contributing towards the uh, overall wealth and good of the world, right? It is just about how to be loyal to Pakistan and how to abuse India. And this is all the books you know, teach. This is all indoctrination that we are talking about, not education. For 16 years, you know, we are taught the same thing again and again in different flavors, with different angles, how to, like, you know, be... Um, uh, a soldier ready to help Pakistan in a fight against India whenever they're needed. And this happens in many countries in border areas, right? People are expected that they will be um, kind of, you know, uh, uh, show their loyalty um, at, at, you know, every, any, any given point when needed. Um, so I think that is one aspect. But but this this trust that you are talking about is a one way trust right now. It's it's just the government is asking to trust of the people, but it's not giving them anything to exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when when we tell them that look, you are uh, taking gold or copper or water resources from our region, and you owe us thirty billion dollars every year uh, for all the minerals and water resources you take from us. And you multiply that by 75 years since you've been occupying us. That does not make them realize that their, you know, loyalty is two-way street. It mm-hmm. actually makes them angry. Mm-hmm. It makes them angry, and then they become oppressive. So another issue, as as you know, you know, being Shia majority area, uh, there's a lot of trust issues with Pakistan. Uh, so the Pakistan's a lot of wealth that they spend in that area is to convert the local people into minority. Mm-hmm. So they, they create these different mechanisms and they create these, these different like, uh, apparatus that they have 
to bring in their own citizens and settle them in strategic areas along the Pakistan-China highway, for instance, or try to convert Shias into Sunnis in in special valleys, certain valleys which are along the Indian border. Um, and then, you know, a lot of Shia genocide has happened in Pakistan in the last 75 years. Some people have taken Pakistan and then direct, you know, affected and victims of that situation too. Uh, so this is the problem with, you know, uh, like uh, living in a, in a place where you can't really call it your own home because you're always suspected. Uh, doesn't matter whether, you know, you are not doing anything wrong or not. You're never trusted. You're always suspected. Uh, it's your, whether you're a Shia or whether you're from a disputed area. Um, you're always seen as someone who might use them. And that's how, you know, they are able to, um, you know, keep us in this guilt trip, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, yeah, there's a trap there uh, where um, we, instead of we trying to, like, you know, convey this message to the Pakistan that we are equal partners, uh, we are, you know, we should expect something in return for the services that we provide or the, the natural resources they use mm-hmm. or the trans- transit route they use with China, for instance. You know, they, they use it for free. They never pay any toll to the local people, for instance. Did... Um, so we, we're always in this guilt. Right, you know, right. We're trapped that we are doing something wrong and Pakistan is always probably in a price that we have to show our loyalty to them and maybe we're not able to like prove ourselves loyal enough and that's why we're not getting you know the uh, revenues that we deserve or the Mm -hmm. respect we deserve the dignity the equal you know citizenship that deserves so we are trapped in the situation and it's all psychological warfare you know so this is i think something that a lot of people just miss they don't understand this is this is this is very very important for our listeners to understand that right now, uh, as Senge said, the government is asking for a trust, but it's telling the people that I don't trust you and I don't trust your religion, even though the history and the culture and everything in the Pakistan is showing that uh, when it comes to the religion and when it comes to the to the war and discrimination, they always, the Shia Muslims were discriminated in Pakistan in majority of the time. And there were so many issues that they had, but when government want to, uh, someone peaceful to host them, to be able to uh, to uh, operate, they always went to the Shia area because they knew that they would not uh, get targeted. Uh, they would not uh, have that issue that they have in the other side of the region. And then, right now, government with this situation is telling them that, okay, I need all your trust, I need all your loyalty, but I don't want to give you anything back. I will, I will take your uh, wealth, but I leave you, I keep you poor. And it, uh, if uh, our listener just go on the on the Google and just put Gilgit Baptistan, look at the situation, look at the pictures. It's beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, look at the rivers, look at the mountains, look at the wealth that that area has. Yeah, it's... we provide more than 60% of Pakistan's irrigation water. Mm-hmm. Um, we provide for almost like, you know, 60 or 70% of the income that comes from tourism. Um, 
and you know we also provide almost 100% resources in terms of like transit that Pakistan is with China um, and you know one of the things that I forgot to mention is that Pakistan has a certain grudge against local people that we do not really cooperate with them mm-hmm. when they want to host their uh, Islamic terrorists there and they say oh because you guys are Shia you don't like you know jihad and stuff and when we want to use your land against Afghanistan, against India, then there's this sense, you know, that we feel that we might not be able to like, completely trust you with that. So we can't really use your land for that. And in the past, they have tried. And, uh, you know, the Shias on the India side, for instance, they are uh, opposed to what Pakistan is doing in terms of like bringing jihadis there mm-hmm. and, and killing local people and raping local women and stuff like that. So. And many times where the, the Shias have, you know, worked with the Indian army to expose those jihadis. And I think this is something that on the Pakistani side has played against the interest of the local people. And it has made, given them this, you know, this excuse uh, that Shias are not loyal. They're not, they're not dependable. They're not trustworthy. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, organizations like lashkar taiba lashkar changwi and Jesh and Muhammad, uh, Al-Badr, and the, there are like, you know, tons and tons of those organizations that work in the part of Jammu Kashmir or Gilgit Baltistan that, you know, Pakistan controls right now. And they infiltrate towards India's side. And, um, you know, the, Pakistan has received more cooperation from the Sunni parts of Jammu Kashmir for infiltration. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to the Shia parts or the Buddhist parts or the Hindu parts, obviously, there is some kind of like you know, lack of interest in that, which is very natural because, you know, we don't believe that Islam could be abused like that. Um, and it doesn't really serve the purpose of the local people. It doesn't really serve the purpose of Islam itself. It doesn't, you know, serve the purpose of like killing innocent people and raping their women and stuff like that. So uh, this is something that, you know, has... Uh, been, you know, uh, bothering the Pakistani authorities that as long as Gilgit Baltistan is a Shia area, we might not be able to use it for jihad purposes against India or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But that is one of the reasons that, you know, they have always used different tactics to um, uh, to con- to convert local people into minority, um, either through genocide, through uh, tribal attacks, to Shias and, you know, uh, manufactured disputes that never exist locally. Uh, most of the people who have disputes with local Shias are the, those who have been, uh, you know, outsiders and now settled there, and they work with the Pakistani army to attack local Shia. Mm-hmm. Local Sunnis do not have any problem with the local Shias. You know, they have intermarriages, they coexist with each other, they share, you know, all kind of like chores in the villages, um, during the agriculture season, for instance, or like, you know, work with other um, in, in other sectors and stuff. So I think their lives are very different from these settlers. Um, so I think, uh, as you mentioned, you know, we, we have all these natural resources that we give to Pakistan, uranium and copper and gold and water. Um, and, you know, uh, and despite that, when they see that the local people are not very, um, you know, uh, accept, accepting the, the, the strategic and the defense 
tactics and policies that the governments use, then it it kind of like work against the interest of the local people. You know, in, mm-hmm. in, indirectly, what happens is that then government have different excuses to reduce the money for education and health and other sectors. You know, seventy-five years have passed. We don't have even a single uh, medical college there. Wow. We don't have even a single engineering college. And the, the region is three times the size of Maryland. It's huge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the map of Europe, Serbia is a country there. It's a big country. Our Gilgit Baltistan is bigger than Serbia in area. And we don't have a single medical college, engineering college there yet. Wow. Uh, so that is what they're doing. They are forcing local people to go to other parts of Pakistan for education. Uh, that causes brain drain, obviously. Um, and then when people move out because of lack of facilities, then they're replaced by their own people. So this is another way of demographic changes mm-hmm. that you, you might see it as natural way of like, you know, people moving in and out. But uh, this is like government induced, you know, this is done on purpose to force people to move out uh, because they can't really live in their own mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it is. Uh, it is surprising. I mean, obviously, every day I'm learning something as well. Yesterday, I was I was reading an article. It was saying that the Lashkar Jangui that you were mentioning, they have in their constitution and other or a couple other uh, uh, terrorist groups that they are operating in Pakistan. They have in their constitution that the Shia are infidel and they must be killed. And people who are not believing in the same way that the Lashkar Jangui and the others are believing, they are they must be targeted. And obviously, if the majority of the Gilgit Baltistan is is a Shia, this is this the best way either to convert them to what they think is the right way of uh, religion, which no one uh, can uh, take that role, because every one of us has the, our own belief and our. Uh, understanding, uh, we we can educate ourselves, but that doesn't mean that I, what we are doing and what we are worshiping is wrong. Same way, go to them. I mean, you mentioned that they are uh, Sunni and Shia, despite their differences, they are coexisting and living in together, because they don't base their livelihood for uh, on the religion. The, the humanity is is more important for them and uh, you know living together and surviving and helping their society but unfortunately this political movement and pot- political interest is something that is pushing those people to uh, to go towards something that they don't want to and it is unfortunate let's say if if pakistan believe truly believe that the gilgit baltistan is their territory and let's say this, it is a mother with a child. The mother would not push their child away from themselves. You know, mother will have that uh, l- lovelihood of the, um, uh, being a mother. But unfortunately, what we've seen is that even though Pakistan is holding the Gilgit Pakistan, but at the same time pushing it back and telling the people over there that, you know what? I don't have your trust. I don't want to have. I want to have your trust, but I will not give you that trust. And I will push you toward India, but at the same time, I will fight you because you are going toward India. It's just yeah, creating are, that they confusion. Are us, they're treating us more like a uh, like an occupied land you mm-hmm, know, where mm-hmm. they could benefit as much as they could 
before mm-hmm. it will slip out of their hands. Um, so you're right, you know, they do not treat local people as their own. They just want the land and the resources. Um, and this is the problem with uh, with the occupying forces. Right. Is that, you know, they, they like to use the land without benefiting the local they don't want to build a trustworthy relationship with the local people. They do not want to have an inclusive policy. It's all about, like, you know, how to benefit at the cost of the local people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, uh, like, you know, it's very evident the way the land and the people have been treated for the last 75 years. And uh, uh, as far as, you know, as you mentioned about Lashkara Jangi, then they have a huge presence in Yogi now and in urban areas now i think they're very you know effective and very uh you know uh, important uh, partners with the pakistani military um it's the same with other parts in pakistan for instance in baluchistan um uh in in you know uh, districts in in different parts of pakistan with the shias have a significant uh, population uh, those are the areas where Lashkar um, e have been given a task to control the local Shias and intimidate them and control them. And, uh, you know, in Gilgit Baltistan, they're doing the same job. And uh, this is going to affect the mindset of the future generations. As you said, you know, we grew up uh, coexisting with each other, even though we belong to Shia and Sunni religions and stuff. But in the future, in the coming generations, I think they, their behavior with each other will be different. Mm-hmm. The damage to the society, the overall damage uh, that's been done cannot be undone. You know, this is this is something that is going to hurt the, the territory uh, in the long Right. So... Uh, Let's say uh, our our uh, listener is they are uh, they hear us and they know now they have basic understanding of uh, where is Gilgit Baltistan and what is the situation over there. What 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 is the thing the thing that you are looking to see from the you know international community from the society from the people. From the people who have a passion to help others and the people who are trying to uh, change the world toward a peaceful uh, country. Well, you know, what we have uh, done in the past and we've been doing is that we're trying to communicate to the international community Mm -hmm. that terrorism should not be a tool to promote uh, foreign policy or strategic affairs and should not be recognized as... uh, something normal, and if Pakistan is doing it, then international community should stop. Mm-hmm. International community should take notice of all the uh, mushrooming of the madrasas in Pakistan. There are more than 40,000, 50,000 madrasas uh, in Pakistan, and half of them are just like, you know, non-existent on papers. You know, they're not registered. Right. Uh, about 26,000 or 27,000 of them probably registered. And all these mothers' house, what they do is they promote hate, they promote killing, they promote uh, to, you know, abuse uh, of Islam uh, as a political tool to uh, hurt the minorities, to hurt non-Muslims, to hurt women, 
her children. I think this is something that we're doing. Um, if there's a funding coming to Pakistan, there's money coming to Pakistan through the United Nations, through the United States, or any other country in the field of education and human resources, then they should take notice of where that money is going from, what kind of education and indoctrination local people are receiving, which is hurting at the regions like Yogi Pakistan and Balochistan and other places like Karachi. Mm-hmm. But there's something that, you know, we, we expect. And that's why I, it's really important for a person like me to go and talk to someone at the United Nations, someone at the U.S. Congress, someone at the different think tanks who influence uh, White House uh, or State Department and their policies of, you know, funding uh, international communities, right? Uh, we also expect India to play its role open border towards the Pakistan so the separated families but even though Pakistan resists that and Pakistan is refusing to open it but in India and the international community should be uh, you know working on that. Um, and sometimes you know we don't have food for like weeks. We don't have mm-hmm. supplies for weeks. You know, it should come through there should be alternative routes to India to provide for medical supplies for instance mm-hmm. to you know uh, there's trade going on between Pakistani city of Lahore and Indian city of Amritsar. And if, if they can trade with each other, why not through the Pakistan? You know, why the local people have to be economically, uh, you know, dependent on Islamabad all the time? So these are the things that need to be exposed, that how local people are kept marginalized and economically weak so they could be remained dependent on Islamabad for handouts and and not be able to resist, um, you know, all uh, uh, kind of like uh, things thrown at them, like jihad and terrorism and stuff like that. Um, then we also like the United Nations to play a role. You know, the United Nations Security Council has a resolution that Pakistan is to withdraw from the and Pakistan need to be reminded again and again. Uh, so that is something that, that is very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, international community has a role to play in Pakistan. Uh, my job is to educate the local people, you know, uh, so local people have an understanding of who's the real culprit and, you know, how uh, the Pakistani government and the the last 75 years have been able to uh, deprive locals of their rights. Uh, you know, the Shia Sunni uh, manufactured conflict in Kirti Pakistan. Uh, it's not not something real, you know. And uh, uh, we have been accused of disloyalty to Pakistan. And the fact remains is that if we're not Pakistani citizens, then the question of loyalty does not really exist. You, you don't have to be loyal to a country if you're not a citizen of that country. Uh, if the United Nations says that it's an occupied land and Pakistan is an occupier, mm-hmm. then we don't have to be loyal to an occupier. So, you know, these are the things that we need, uh, I need to educate uh, my own people over there. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to do, and most of that is you know, educating and communicating and passing on information to um, make other entities realize that they have a certain role to play and there's a certain way to look at the Pakistan and 
All right, all right. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Sengi, for this uh, uh, fantastic uh, episode. It, I, I, honestly, I learned a lot. Uh, now, uh, let, let us know how people can reach uh, you uh, with, through the social media. Obviously, if they just put your name, Sengi Sering, they, you know, there is so many articles and interviews done by you. But what are the social media that you have that they can reach you out? Where you are active? Uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook? Which one you can uh, provide to us so we can uh, let the people to contact you if they need anything? Yes, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, I have uh, more than 13,000 followers right now. And, uh, I mostly talk about issues pertaining to Pakistan, India, China, and, and uh and especially, you know, with, with an angle to the Pakistan, mm-hmm. my name, uh, my handle on Twitter is Engage Searing. Um, H is my, you know, uh, initial for my middle name, which is Hassan. Um, and then I'm also on uh, Facebook with the same name. Um, and uh, you will be able to Google me and you know, of what I have uh, written. Mm-hmm. I write for different... Uh, newspapers and magazines and online uh, and media outlets there you know i have a lot of interviews on youtube uh, that explains a lot about looking pakistan and pakistan india relations and what china is doing there um and uh, you know it's in urdu it's in english it's in different languages in hindi uh so uh, so uh i think uh, social media is, is the way to like you know contact and stay in touch with with the outside world nowadays, so I've been uh, there for a long time, and I hope that you'll be able to go and read my articles and try to learn more about you know what Pakistan and China are doing. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, it was very informative uh, episode, and uh, we are looking forward to hear from our listener. Uh, obviously, you might have a lot of questions. You can uh, reach out to us. Uh, Sengay uh, Sering or Musafa Akawan and both uh, will provide you with the information and the documentation and uh, address to, to uh, our social media that you can link on and connect to us and ask the question if you have any questions. Sengay, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, I'm looking forward to have another uh, program with you and tell the people of what is going on in the world and we will bring other people who are very active, uh, professional uh, human rights defenders uh, or people who have a passion towards something that is helping our society to become a better society and peaceful uh, society. Thank Thank you you so much. much. I'm I'm very happy to co-host it with you and I hope to uh, continue this uh, trend and I hope to talk to so many other interesting people that that are out there in the U.S. and elsewhere doing a great job. All right. Thank you. Thank you.